Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 48, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, it's the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, Forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Revelation 21.9 Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod. 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built 
of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the sense the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a wonderful coincidence in our schedule of readings. Um, For those of you who've not been with us through the time of ordinary time, which is the season of the church calendar in which we are finding ourselves today, um, you may have never seen uh, a schedule of readings. And so the schedule of readings that we use is optional during the time in ordinary time. So as a church, we usually use this season to address things in the body and to also go through entire books of the Bible. So we just wrapped up last week this series that we did on the book of Philippians. And as I was planning what we would be discussing this morning, I I recognized the great importance of Psalm 48 as it was scheduled in our schedule for today and how it might speak deeply to the season that we find ourselves in as a church. And so as we are examining what the psalmist and John the Apostle have written about the city of God as it is a metaphor for God's people, I do not mean to use these verses to say this is what we're doing at 1645 Spalding. But in another way, I do mean to say this is what we're doing at 1645 Spalding. And the reason I am able to say that is because God uses ordinary means to accomplish spiritual transformation. Uh, You are hearing my voice, albeit scratchy, through a project or through a uh, speaker, it is being transmitted over radio waves. And from time to time, should the Lord be pleased, 
he will cause his spirit to move upon your hearts through godly preaching that you hear because of radio waves and electricity and magnets driving cones of plastic causing the air to shake. That is how mysterious our God is. He created the spiritual realm. He created the physical realm. And to us who are Western, we think they are very divided. But to God, they are not very divided. He has created the world to be used to glorify him. And so as we look at Psalm 48 and what it says about the people of God in Revelation 21, what it says about the city of God, the bride of Christ, the church coming down out of heaven, we see a very amazing thing that he has caused from time to time his glory to be seen through the things which are made, as we learn in Romans 1, other places in the scripture. And so I thought it would be deeply helpful to see how these verses tie to what we're doing with our lives, with our time, with that building, what we've done with this building, is to create a place in which people see the glory of God. That is the vision, what I believe Psalm 48 is calling the people of God to, is to think about how God is seen, not in the city for the city's sake, but in the context of the city. That as the people come to Jerusalem, they're able to meditate upon and to behold the glory of God. So I want to begin by addressing the greatest problem in the world which is the lack of glorifying God and the lack of seeing God. And then from there to study the history of the scriptures to see how God has chosen a people by whom he would accomplish his work of redemption and through him his son would come into the earth to accomplish redemption. And that context, which was real people and a real place and real stones, real gold. That context then is demonstrated by the scriptures as being a parable about the true spiritual reality of the true temple and the real temple of God, which is him dwelling in the midst of his people. And then finally, I want to move to the end of the psalm as the psalmist instructs us to consider what the citadel looks like and see how John did that in his apocalypse, that is, his revelation. I love the word apocalypse because it's been so twisted and and recovering it is one of my deep desires for my life. The unveiling, that's what the apocalypse is, the unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ as he has glorified and prepared his bride for himself. So, how are these verses at all applicable to anything in life? This is a poem It's a poem about a spiritual reality, and it seems very ethereal. It seems very detached from reality, but that could be nothing further from the truth. The greatest problem in the entire world, the chief root of sin, is that people do not glorify God at all. Neither do they see him as God. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, John Gray wonderfully addressed a great spiritual malaise of the modern era. 
is the exaltation and the puffing up of self. But that comes from the root of not seeing God for who God is and not glorifying God for who God is. We know that our first parents, Adam and Eve, were deceived and rebelled at the tree, took from the tree the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which was their decision to choose between good and evil. They established themselves as the judges of what is right and what is wrong, the ones who decide, not the ones who discover. That's the difference between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil is taking from that tree is to choose on our own. It is self-rule, not God's rule. And so the greatest issue in the world is not poverty or human trafficking or abortion or the Democrats or the Republicans. The greatest problem in the world is not ISIS or the EU or the Federal Reserve Bank. The greatest problem in the world is that men and women throughout the world do not know God. They do not glorify him as God. Their minds have been blinded by their sins so that they cannot perceive who God is. As we sang this morning, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, it is impossible for those who are trapped in sin to recognize the glory of God. And so the greatest problem in the world is not the problems in the world that we know. It's not cancer. It is not diabetes. It is not Monsanto. The greatest problem in the world is that people do not know God. And they're blinded by their sin from discovering God. They cannot grasp hold of him. They cannot come to him on their own. And the chief resolution to the greatest problem is God himself taking the initiative to unleash his plan of redemption in the earth. Through the fall, men are blinded by their sin and they cannot know God. Therefore, at the fall, God declared, he announced the beginning of the promise. He said to the serpent as Eve and Adam heard that there would be enmity, there would be a spiritual battle, a war between the seed of the serpent, the, the little tiny snakes who come after him, and the seed of the woman, the one seed of the woman. And the enmity between these two would never be resolved. It would be terminated. There is no peace treaty, but there is victory. The serpent head will be crushed. And that is what takes place in the person of Jesus. Before that is fulfilled, however, God lays hold of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even before Abraham, Noah. And he chooses men to call to himself, and he announces his word, which is a promise to them to bless the nations. The chief answer to the great problem, the greatest evil in the world, which is sin, which is not being able to see God, nor wanting to honor God as God, is answered by God sending his son to his people. And those people were called to him by the promise given to the patriarchs, the fathers of that people. This is what all men have done. They have turned from the author of life and they pursue idols that cannot satisfy. Jeremiah 2, 13, the Lord accuses his people of two great evils. They've committed two great evils. They have turned from 
the wellspring or the river of life, and they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns which cannot hold water. Jeremiah is saying a metaphor. He's saying that the things which Israel has turned to from Yahweh, not only are they not drinking from Yahweh, but what they're trying to drink from is an empty pit. At the building, John Luke yesterday cleaned out a thing called a catch basin. And I have deeply loved learning about water systems and removing water. And one of the things that's interesting about this catch basin is by design, when there's no rain, it should really have no water in it. And we were able to actually stand at the bottom of it because it had a place for the water to go and it had not recently rained. This is what a broken cistern is. It's when you dig out a pit or a well to hold water so that you come and get, get water from it. But the problem is, according to Jeremiah, every single idol is broken at the bottom. The water that you put into it and hope to get from it is always gone when you come back. All that's left is a little bit of moist dirt at the base of the well. This is the spiritual idolatry that every single person in the entire world has committed. And because that is the condition of every single man, it is incumbent on us to recognize the inability of man to come to God on our own. Therefore, God has, as I said, taken the initiative. In his great mercy, God has declared that there would be a repair in the spiritual war which, in which man sided with the serpent. And that through God's great mercy, there would be a means of redemption that is, the atonement of the blood of his son. God began this plan, as we said, by announcing a promise to the woman that there would be one to crush the serpent's head. But that promise was merely a foundational or initial promise, which contained the whole kernel of God's promise, but it was only later to be discovered how that promise would be fulfilled. If you move forward through the scriptures, you see God lays hold of the patriarchs and gives them greater promises. And he expands their clarity of understanding what that initial promise was. He says to Abraham to follow him, to leave the land he came from, and he would give him the land of promise where he directed him to walk. And he promised Abraham that God would make him a multitude that he would take Abraham and multiply him through a promised son, namely Isaac. And through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this promise then was blossoming into a people. And this people was God's possession. It was God's taking hold of them to use them as the agents by whom he would bless the nations. When you read Genesis, the next time you go through Genesis, notice how quickly God brings Abraham into covenant after the Tower of Babel. It's there on purpose. At the Tower of Babel, the nations are scattered into the earth. They're running from God. They do not glorify God. They are without knowledge of God. And God uses Abraham to go and track them down. That's the way to read the opening parts of Genesis. Throughout the Psalms, then, God's actions in the earth are little revelations of how he has begun to cause 
these things to come about. That his kingship expressed through his people is becoming a blessing to the nations. God told Abraham, I will make you a multitude and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then by calling Abraham and setting him apart, he then formed a people. He took them into captivity that he might be able to pull them out of Egypt and destroy the folly of Pharaoh's system. Not only the worship of Pharaoh as a god, but their boast in economic and military power. He put them to shame so that the nations around Israel would know that Yahweh alone is the true God. That's the result when when Israel moves into the wilderness, they meet some nations and some people tell them, we heard what your Lord did in destroying Egypt and all the nations around you, their hearts have melted like wax. God is expressing his greatness and his glory through the dealings and actions that he has taken on himself and done within his people and through his people. And so we see God expressing his greatness for the sake of calling the nations back to himself. Earlier in Psalm 46.5, the local context of Psalm 48, God is seen as the river of life, and he's described as the source of his people. Psalm 46 verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So the city of God, his people, is not glad unless he is in the midst of her. He goes on in Psalm 45, or excuse me, 46, verse 10. The, the end result of that psalm is that the people should be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so these psalms are addressing the greatest problem in the world, which is that God is not exalted among the nations yet. He is not glorified in the earth yet. And so the psalmist continues in Psalm verses 47. Uh, Before we turn there, Psalm 46 also describes the uttering of God's voice, the sending forth of his word as causing the nations to run away. They were going to come up and make war on the city, and at the voice of God, the nations who wanted to commit war against his people run away. Then in Psalm 47, God's reign is celebrated as the cause for the joy of all the earth. Verse 2, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. That is the reason why all the peoples should shout for joy. The reason that it is joyful that God is king is because all the other false kings are no kings at all. The reason that God, the announcement of God's kingship over the whole earth is a joyous occasion is because you and I have seen the result of non-godly kingship throughout the world. Remember, we talked about the greatest problem is that God is not seen as God and not glorified as God, but all the other little problems are truly real problems. The kings of the earth who cause war to continue and cause, in the, in the context of Psalm 47, cause strife to be multiplied among the nations, these are kings who are multiplying power to themselves. They're not rightly glorifying God. They're not submitting to his law. They're establishing their own laws. And so the reason that the people should sing praises to God is because his kingship is being revealed 
on the earth. Then Psalm 48 crescendos this theme of God's kingship among the nations. In Psalm 46, it begins. In Psalm 47, it multiplies. And Psalm 48 explodes with a celebration of God's kingship. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. At the beginning of the psalm, it doesn't question whether God exists. It doesn't even entertain the thought that God doesn't exist. So often we come with atheistic ideas to the scriptures and we we say, well, what has God done that he's so great? And the psalmist would say, go look at the prior psalms. Psalm 46 and 47 are describing this king in the midst of his people is like a river of life. His presence satisfies the thirsts of their souls, which the idols and the broken cisterns cannot satisfy. And his presence among his people causes the nations who are at war to be settled and to be calmed. And so this king, therefore, is celebrated as one who is greatly to be praised. Where is he to be praised? In the city of our God. And that is the beginning of the celebration of what God does in the midst of his people. He causes his glory to be seen in his city. The city itself is not his glory. The city itself is not God but rather God is seen in the city. The great dilemma of this psalm, and indeed of really the entire scriptures, is not whether God exists. The great dilemma is not whether the scriptures are relevant to our lives. The great dilemma of life is whether our lives have any relevance to what God is doing in the earth and what the scriptures say about life. Modern man has completely turned the table on God's revelation saying, are the Bible, is the Bible relevant? Whereas the Bible presents that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And the question is not whether God is relevant to me, but whether my life is relevant in the unfolding of the redemptive plan of God in history. It's not my timeline, it's God's timeline. And so this psalm then celebrates his actions among his people as the way by which people behold his glory. This psalm, therefore, uses a theme of a city, and this is, as you may have guessed, it is a literary device. It is an analogy or or a metaphor of a picture of what God has done in time, in real history. And so to use the phrase metaphor would be inaccurate Because it is a literary device, it is a metaphor, it's a metaphor in the poem, but this poem is telling something about what has taken place in history, and it's also simultaneously a prophecy of what God is going to do in the future. Unless we understand this imagery, we will totally miss the point of this psalm. If you read this psalm and you say, okay, the city of God, when uh, the sons of Korah were writing, that was Jerusalem, and therefore we need to reestablish the glory of Jerusalem, would be to totally miss the point of this psalm and the psalms and the scriptures. The point of this psalm is not to praise the earthly Jerusalem's beauty during the time of the sons of Korah but rather was written as an extolling of God's kindness 
that he has even ever allowed his glory to be seen. And where it was seen as another prophecy of where it will be seen in the future. When he first brought his people into the promised land, God chose a place to dwell. He said in the giving of the law that there would be a place in which he would cause his name to dwell. That he would invest his personal authority, his name, in a place. And that place would be chosen by him. And interestingly, I think poetically, the name is the place of that the name of that place is not announced by God at first. It calls the reader to wonder where is this place? And then eventually, only after a short time, uh, excuse me, only after a long time is it disclosed which city God did indeed choose. This place that he is going to choose is the center of worship for the nation. If the Israelite is to keep the law, he has to make a spiritual pilgrimage multiple times per year to that city to bring his offering up to the temple in the midst of that city. Through David, God announced again another promise, further multiplying and expanding the prior promises that he would not only have a city, but within that city, he would put a house for my name, a temple of his design. And in that temple, offerings would be made and prayers would be given and offered up. And that through that temple, Yahweh would dwell in the midst of his people. If you look throughout the history of the world, people have created temples and they always, especially in the Western world with the Greeks and the Romans, especially, they have created temples trying to imitate this true temple that God had made. But as we'll see in just a few minutes, even this temple was a temporary shadow which God used for a time. When Solomon ordains the temple and lays the foundation and all of the walls are made and all of the furniture is made and all the offerings are given, the glory of God descends into the temple so thick and so strong that all of the ministers have to back out of the room because they cannot withstand the power of the presence of God. And so God caused his presence to dwell in the center of the temple, in the center of the city, in the middle of the people. He dwelled with his people. And that was given as a time, as I like to say, a visual parable or a visual physical sermon of who the people of God are to be. By dwelling with his people, then God caused them to become a light for the nations. That initial promise given to Abraham, by which Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations, begins to be fulfilled as soon as the temple is completed. The queen of Sheba comes up to Solomon's court and takes notice. And as she is telling the her experience, she says, I heard great things about your glory, but I didn't even hear the half of it. That's where that phrase has come from in English, by the way. That's from the Bible, from Tyndale's Bible. Um, and, and not having heard the half of it was her experience. She, she saw the glory of Solomon. And as she's describing it, she even includes the way Solomon set his table as an expression of the wisdom of God operating through him. And she then declares there is no God 
like Yahweh. And she brings gold and spices with her to Jerusalem to give to the Lord as tribute to Solomon. So we see in Psalm 48, 1 through 3, the description of this city, and we immediately recognize this was the joy of the earth for a time. And yet, as we will move through the psalm very quickly, we see something else has to be considered. Psalm 48, 1 through 3, his holy mountain, which is beautiful in in, in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, with her, within her citadels, God has made himself known. Mount Zion is the joy for the peoples of the earth, not because it itself is glorious, but because within it, God can be seen. The strength of God's people is not Jerusalem, but it's in him, because the fortress is not the city. The fortress is God. If you've never heard the word citadel, um, it is just a word that means a great um, compound. If you think of the Middle Ages, you might remember there are towers. For example, down in Cincinnati, there is a cannon tower. It's a wonderful building if you ever get the chance to drive by it. It's a cannon tower and an armory so that should the city of Cincinnati be attacked, the people at that time would have had somewhere to go. But a tower, as you know, is much smaller than a castle. A castle has walls, and it has many towers. And the idea of a citadel is even greater than a castle. If you've ever played Age of Empires or Civilization, you know what I'm talking about. There is a tower and a castle and a citadel. And notice what the psalmist says about the city of God. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. A citadel is not the end goal. The end goal is seeing who the real fortress is. It's God himself. Jerusalem was never to be the rallying cry or, or you know, rendezvous point for the hope of Israel. It was always supposed to be Yahweh. And the history of Israel, of course, bears this out. Likewise, this city, therefore, has become a stand-in for God. That is to say, so tied together is the revelation of God within the city that when the kings begin to approach Jerusalem, metaphorically, they are terrified at the prospect of the thing of which they've undertaken. When these kings who are going to besiege Jerusalem actually look upon it, they are filled with dread such they wish to abandon their initiative completely. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, the city, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. And apologies to my wonderful wife, but I did not choose the timing of this reading. The point is that when they saw the city of God and through its gates perceived the glory of God which was within her and causing her to stand, their hearts, as with the people at the entrance in the land, melted like wax. Their strength faded away from them. If you've ever fainted, that's what's taking place. Kings who've assembled armies with chariots look at the city of God, see the power of God within her, 
and are shaken to the core. This idea here of the trembling which comes up with labor pains, those who have given birth know that once real labor begins, it is on and there is no way to stop it. The psalmist is saying that by the kings of the Gentiles coming up against the people of God, they have undertaken a proposition which they cannot stop and they have roused the anger of God and therefore are trembling at the proposition that he might rise up and oppose them. They don't know what they've started. And that's exactly what the psalmist is anticipating. The point is that the psalmist tells of the glory of God, which is seen in this day. At the end of verse 8, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. Throughout the generations, Israel has heard particular stories of God's glory and greatness. And these stories which she has heard are now re-experienced in the city. It says in this psalm, in verse 8, As we have heard, so now we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of God, which God will establish forever. Selah. Rightly placed is this Selah because at this point in the psalm, we face a great dilemma. Students of history understand and rightly know that this psalm was written before the captivity of Judah and Israel and before the first sacking and sieging of Jerusalem. And the question has to be asked, how can the psalmist say that God will establish Jerusalem forever if we know from history that not only in the Assyrian captivity, but also in the sacking of Rome, carried out by Rome, the city of God was not established forever. As we come to the scriptures, we must deal with these sorts of problems and we must answer them throughout the rest of scripture. Though God did choose Jerusalem at a time and did choose the people of God in the nation of Israel for a time and did announce through David the establishing of his temple, God did forsake them because of the idolatries of the people. In 2 Kings 23 and 27, God renounces the temple and says, I will take away Israel as I've taken away Judah and I will also take away Jerusalem for they've turned from me. God is saying that because of the sins of Israel, he will now turn away from that temple which he had regarded and dwelt in because it is no longer his house. It was a house for his name, but it was stolen by the the sinning people of Israel. It was God's house and they made it their own. It was a place for the nations to be prayed for and they have made it as not only Jeremiah, but also our Lord has quoted saying it has become a den of robbers, a place where people who steal live. And the point was that the temple was the vehicle through which God was going to bless the nations. And Israel has perverted the purpose and now caused that temple to become the source of their gain, not the blessing of the nations. Though that city was destroyed, not only in the sacking carried out by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and not only in the sacking which Rome did against Jerusalem in 70 AD, the true city can never be removed. And that is exactly what the psalmist wants us 
to understand. The promises of this psalm, therefore, do not concern a physical place. They concern the people of God. The city is a metaphor for God's people. Therefore, the covenant faithfulness of God, his steadfast love, which can never be removed, is not seen in Jerusalem unless God is in that Jerusalem. And therefore, as we think of what the church is today in her mixture and in her duplicity of heart, we have to understand that not all which is called the church is the church. Likewise, not all that is called Christian is Christian. Nevertheless, the promises of God to his people have no, they do not sway at all with regard to those who falsely proclaim to be Christians or falsely proclaim to be churches. The true church is beautiful and is wonderful and is the context in which the glory of God is seen. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Again, the psalmist presents the temple as a place in which people can think about and learn about the glory of God and his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. It's an amazing verse when you understand the context that God had decided to judge Judah. And yet the psalmist is able to say quite clearly, let Judah praise the Lord and rejoice because of God's judgments. Jerusalem and the earthly temple, therefore, are seen throughout the scriptures as merely being a shadow of the true heavenly temple. We see this throughout the book of Hebrews, especially chapters 8, 9, and 10, as this idea of the sacrifices which were still going on in Jerusalem were about to end because the true sacrifice had taken place. The offering up of the blood of the the Son of God was the true sacrifice, the one necessary sacrifice. And therefore, since it has been offered up, God is about to sweep away the old house and to bring down a new. Paul likewise said in Galatians that the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem from heaven, is free and she is our mother. And so the question must be asked, and to ask the question is to answer it. If the Jerusalem from above is our mother, then what does that mean about the inbreaking of the Jerusalem from above? It means it's already begun. John the Revelator saw this true heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, looking like a bride for her husband. And Paul at one point says, I am concerned that you turn away from the pure devotion to Christ or that you turn away from pure devotion like a bride. He's saying to the church, I have prepared you as a bride for the beloved, for Jesus Christ. And he's concerned that she not soil her garments, that she maintain her purity to the Lord. The psalmist therefore tells us to meditate upon what we see throughout Zion. He says to us, the instruction to us, The command that we must obey, having seen the aspect of the glory of God being seen within the city of God, he then tells us to meditate about what the city is. He says, walk about Zion, go about her, number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her citadels. 
it's very interesting to me that John, in seeing the great city coming down out of heaven, does exactly that. He perfectly, for us, obeys this commandment in this psalm to consider the city of God. And interestingly, he goes and looks at the gates and the walls and the foundations. And he considers what the city is made of. And he explains to us in poetry and in biblical symbolism what the city of God is founded upon. John moves through the city and he obeys this commandment to the T, going so far as to actually walk around her and measure her. The city has the glory of God and angels stationed within its gates. If you remember back to the garden at the end of the judgment of Adam and Eve and the serpent, God establishes an angel at the entrance to the garden. And so when John says there are angels in each one of the gates, we immediately think, wow, this is the way we get back into the garden. We have to come and be gained entrance by an angel. And the word for angel is the same word for messenger. It's, it's not just to describe a heavenly being which is on fire and has wings and a sword. It is a word to describe those who bring the sayings of God. There are messengers standing in the gates. These gates have the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Levi. It is clear that the city is a metaphor for God's people because each one of the gates is named after the tribes of Israel. And clearly John is not seeing the reestablishing of the nation of Israel. He's seeing the establishing of God's people. The foundations of the walls have the names of the 12, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And you would instantly think if you are reading carefully, is Judas's name on one of the foundations? He's one of the 12. And you remember through your scriptures, he actually isn't one of the 12. As he fell away, Acts 1 recounts the establishing of a 12th apostle. And then you would think, wow, is Paul part of that 12? No, he's not. He said he was an untimely born apostle. So do the walls have Paul's name on them? And As you're meditating on and considering the ramparts of the city of God, you would instantly start to see, oh, it's not literal. It's a a metaphor about what establishes the people of God. The foundations having the names of the apostle isn't to wonder whether you're going to be in John's gate or you're going to be in Levi's gate or, or what have you, it's to, it's to meditate what is the people of God founded upon. It's founded upon the teachings of the apostles by which we gain entrance into this great city. We are taken from e- being evildoers and dogs and thieves, and we are washed by the, the writings and brought into the people into the midst of God's people. Unlike the earthly Jerusalem in this temple, or excuse me, in this city, there is no temple any longer because there doesn't need to be a temple because God dwells in the midst of this city without mediation. He does not need a representative any longer. There is no longer a need for a temple because there is no longer a need for a sacrifice because the sacrifices 
the sacrifice has been made and offered. The nations then are influenced by the light of this lamb through the city and those who are cleansed may enter the city. And so again, you would think, wow, there's still nations. So this city can't only come down after the end of all things. So where's this city is the question. Where is John looking when he sees the city coming down out of heaven? I believe, it is my firm conviction, I believe it is the only way to understand the New Testament that John saw that city in a vision and that city was already coming down and it's still coming down. And that city is not just the heaven in which we will reside at the end of all things, but is a picture of the true church as she is gaining ground in the earth. This is the beauty of the bride of Christ, the church. And therefore, it is the purity which describes her stones and the gold which is composing the city. We, t- we should meditate upon what this city is like. Further, therefore, the way that the psalmist tells us to meditate is for a purpose. This is the point of working for the purity of the church is this, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, for what reason? That you may tell the next generation that this is God. Not that the city is God, but that as they come into the city and as we move about the city, we see the history and we learn the dealings and the faithfulness of our God and we hear the gospel clearly and we are then able to tell the next generation who our God is. What is it that we tell? We tell them the gospel, that those who formerly did not see God as God have now been given open eyes. Remember the greatest problem in the world where we began? The greatest problem in the world is that no one sees God as God, nor do they glorify God as God. And now the ones who did not see God now get to live in the city where God is present God, through the gospel, has answered the spiritual blindness of his people and has caused them to be able to behold not just him, but also his son, the lamb. And that lamb is the light source by which they see. Those who turn from him are invited to return to him by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have sinned against God can now enter the city by washing their robes in the blood of the lamb. And now they can live with the lamb who was slain and has come back to life. That is what John is trying to say when he says, this is the city coming down out of heaven and you can go live with the lamb there. That's what we do in the church. This is the kindness of our God. And it is that message which we must tell a coming generation. That's the point of this psalm. Think about the beauty of the church which Christ has purchased for her and caused her to begin to take on and meditate upon that beauty so that when you have the opportunity, you can tell the next generation that is who our God is. That's the point of Psalm 48. That's the point of considering Revelation 21 in the context of Psalm 48. And that's the point of working at 1645 Spalding Avenue. The point is not to create walls with the foundations where we put people's names on them 
or to put jewels on the walls. That's not the point of beautifying 1645. The point is to create a place in which the word of God can be proclaimed and the great mercies and deeds of God can be retold to those who have yet to be born. That's the point of being a Christian. It's not so that you can simply be blessed by God, but just like your spiritual forebearer Abraham, by being blessed, you can be a blessing. And the way that you're a blessing is you point them to look to God. That's the point. So this is my prayer. As those who are entrusted, as we are told in the New Testament, to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, as you and I are those people who are commissioned to do that, we ought to rightly consider the health of the church. The health of the church is a community project. And by that I mean the health of a local church is not simply the actions of its elders or pastors or people who volunteer. It is incumbent upon all of us individually and corporately to meditate upon the nature of that city. As John says in Revelation 21, nothing unclean ever enters that city. The point is, have we been washed by the blood of the lamb and are we continuing to walk by the light of the lamb and to walk in truth and to walk in purity? This is the call to follow Jesus Christ and to persevere in our faith and to not let our garments be stained by the world or by the sin which so easily entangles. It's the call to persevere in Jesus Christ. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We, it is so beautiful, Lord. If a human in, endeavored to create something more beautiful they could not. It is only your spirit. It is only by your spirit that this psalmist and John the apostle were able to perceive the kindness of God in making a bride and a people. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us as your people to be like that city, which is our hope and our, our, we trust our destiny. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk by the light of the Lamb and that we would keep our robes washed in his blood and that we would not sully them in the world or with the, with the stains of the flesh, but that we would walk with uprightness of heart before you. We pray, God, that you would cause us to see your glory in the midst of your people and that we would not neglect the importance of your church, but that we would praise you rightly for the blessings through her that we receive. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this call to come to this city and to live with you. It is our deepest desire and it is our confidence that by your grace alone, we will gain entrance. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.